Morning, gentlemen. Guys, we are in Matthew 18, which is a very important chapter of the Bible, as we are going to see increasingly as we go along. And here's what's happening in Matthew 18. Jesus is saying that if we're going to be his disciples, if we're going to walk with him, if we're going to train other people to be his disciples, we have to take a few things very seriously. Our own character from the inside out, Sermon on the Mount, we have to take very seriously our mission. Everything that we do is oriented toward the expansion of God's kingdom here and around the world through proclamation of the gospel and deeds of love and mercy, chapter 10. That if we're going to be his disciples, we've got to have a view of his kingdom as the kingdom that's overall, and not be thrown aside by the kingdoms of this world or our own kingdoms, chapter 13. And then he's saying, if you want to be my disciples, you're going to have to learn to do church and do it my way, not your way. Uh, men are always constantly seeking to take the church and to shape it into their own image, make it a club that they can make good use of, make it a, an association that they can take advantage of. But Jesus is saying, no, my church has specific purposes. There's a, a particular way I want you to operate. And it's vital for Christian discipleship. You can't be a disciple of Jesus Christ without being engaged actively in his church. It's impossible. And some try it, and it never works. It can look like it's working for a while, but it doesn't really work. We're going to see why, because in order to follow Christ, we have to do this in community. We have to be in relationship, and we have to be in certain types of relationships. It's a family and all of us have dysfunctional family backgrounds to one degree or another. Even if your mommy and daddy loved you, there are still things that were not completely right there and some things that shaped your life and therefore shaped the way you think about community. And when we come to Christ, we have our ideas about community changed. He wants us to be healthy and he wants us to be involved in healthy churches and helping them to be healthy as churches. That's what's going on. Now, we saw last week that as he introduces this whole concept, he talks first of all about our humility. That we can't be of any good to ourselves or to anyone else unless there's a humility of mind, a lowliness of spirit. And he takes a child and says, unless you change and become like this little child, not childish, but childlike, unless you become like this little child, uh, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So even entering this community requires being like a child in a number of ways. And especially we saw that it requires that we be like a child in the sense that we take the low seat at the feast, that we humble ourselves and we, be, we see ourselves as less important than somebody else. It's a huge, it's an impossible task. It's going to require uh, the power of God for us to do this. But today, what we're going to see is, as we, as we look at verses 7 through 9, that the community into which we are to enter, when we become Christians, we get converted to Christ, converted to the church, and converted to the world. And in our conversion to the church, we enter this church humbly, and we realize what this church is. It's to be a holy community. Communio, communio sanctorum in Latin, holy community. Uh, it's not just like any lackadaisical family or, or a group of friends you may join. It's not like your golf club. This is a holy community. 
It has a purpose, and we have a purpose that we share with each other. And that's what we're going to see in this text and in the text that follow, that this means that we must behave in a particular way. This is how we get to know Christ, in community, by fulfilling his purposes for us. Let's take a look then at Matthew 18, verses 7 through 9, and I'll walk us through this on the outline. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Pretty rough stuff, gentlemen. Okay, I want us to notice two things. First of all, verse 7, and then we'll look at verses 8 and 9. In verse 7, basically we're learning here, woe to the tempter. Woe, W-O-E, woe to the tempter. And what we're learning in this verse, first of all, is we have to learn how to deal with others effectively and deal with other people's temptations effectively. You're not guilty for somebody else's sin, but you are responsible to help them not fall into sin. You see the difference? I'm not responsible if you rob a bank. But I am responsible if I don't try to restrict you from robbing a bank or if I teach you to rob a bank or if I set a bad example for you to go rob a bank. So I'm responsible for my behavior in as much as it affects you. And American Christians really need to get this in mind. You are not just responsible for what's affecting you. You're responsible for what affects everybody around you and especially among God's special children. He calls these his little children. He said, you'd be better off to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the Mississippi River than to cause one of these little ones to fall into temptation. Now, temptation itself is not sin. Remember, Jesus, we are told in the Bible, is tempted in, was tempted in every way just as we were. Every way, your greed, your sexual temptations, your pride, Jesus was tempted in every way just as you are. There's not one temptation you've ever had that Jesus didn't have. But he never sinned. Now we're so screwed up, we, we can't even make the distinction between what it means to be tempted and what it means to sin. Because for us, it just kind of all goes together because we so frequently fall into sin. But for Jesus, there's a clear line between being tempted by the devil and this world and falling into it. So, for example, Jesus could look at a lovely female figure, although they were more nicely covered in that day than they are in ours, but he could look at a woman and, and notice that she is beautiful. And he could be tempted to have all kinds of imaginations about having a, an intimate relationship with her. He could be tempted to have all those thoughts but he would immediately oppose the temptation and ward it off. So he never engaged in the sin itself. 
The temptation flies by him all the time in every way, and he never engages in it. So he's our model. He's the one who can help us because he's been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. So what we've got to deal with then is how do we help others not fall into temptation? Because Jesus says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. He says, sin, temptations are going to come. It's necessary that they happen because of the fall. But woe be to the one from whom or through whom that temptation comes. And you can think of someone's who have come under the condemnation of God for their temptation. Think about the tempter himself. Satan is called the tempter. And the tempter has been finally condemned. And all that waits now for him is the lake of fire. He is gone. He is under God's wrath and, and condemnation. What about Judas? Uh, Judas was one who uh, tempted others and was tempted. Uh, what about this world? This world allures us. It's constantly tempting us. This world is under condemnation. So your flesh, which cooperates so easily with temptation, it's under the condemnation of God. It will be destroyed and we'll have new bodies and we will no longer have flesh within dwelling sin one day. So everything that tempts, every agent of temptation is ultimately to be destroyed. So we do not want to be part of this. Now, let's talk for just a moment, and this comes from John Owen on his work on temptation, uh, which is one of the better works on spiritual uh, life that you'll ever read. Uh, you can look in volumes four and volume six of John Owen's work, works. But he describes the problems of falling into temptation. Let me, let me give you the four things that he says happen when we fall into temptation. John Owen was a 17th century Puritan. Owen says, first of all, falling into temptation defiles our consciences. It defiles our consciences. So when you have a temptation and you fall into it, what you find is your whole conscience has been corrupted and polluted. And of course, there's an answer for that in the gospel. But we want to prevent those kinds of things from distorting and, and polluting our own consciences. Because remember, we, we operate consciously, uh, constantly, and even subconsciously, intuitively, out of a conscience. And so you've got to guard and protect that conscience very carefully because you, just, you operate like this, making decisions, ethical and moral decisions like that all, all day long. And they come out of an intuition that's connected to a clean conscience. And when you fall into temptation, it has the effect of corrupting that conscience and defiling it. Secondly, Owen says it disturbs our peace. So the peace that we have with God, the confidence that we have of His love, the assurance that we have that we're going to heaven, all of those things that contribute to the tranquility of our souls as brothers in Christ, that gets disturbed. And so the devil, by leading us into temptation, and we fall into that temptation, we disturb our own peace. Well, what happens when your peace is disturbed? You no longer have the confidence to walk with God. You're no longer involved in evangelism. You're rarely praying about anything except your own soul. You become very introverted and introspective. And you're not thinking about those around you. So when you're falling into temptation, you disturb your own peace. And now you're in some ways diminished in your ability to affect other people. Thirdly, Owen says... 
it weakens our obedience. So, hey, you know, if I can flick on my computer and, and pull up some pornography, it may have been difficult for me. I may have waited five minutes and wrestled with myself the first time, but hey, tomorrow, first thing, click the button, go right on. It weakens your defenses. When you, once you fall into temptation, there's a breach in the wall, and you're, we, you're a weaker man than you were before you fell into that temptation. That's what Owen is saying. I think he's quite right. And fourthly, it clouds our vision of God. We are constantly motivated by a vision of who God is and what He's done for us. And when we fall into temptation, we, that vision gets clouded and murky. And we're, we're not as vividly and uh, vibrantly motivated out of what God has done for us and who God is. We lose our vision of God through falling in temptation. So obviously... We want to be very careful with other people not to lead them into temptation. That's the devil's work, is to trip up God's people. If the devil could destroy Christ, he would. If he could destroy the church, he would. And he has multiple strategies to do that. And so I'd like for us to think for just a moment, and this is not on your notes, but I'd like to add to it. Four ways in which we must give care not to tempt other people. I mean, in other words, how do we obey verse 7? I'd like to give us four pieces of advice on how we live life in the church so that we are not tempting other people into sin and into a life of defiling their conscience, disturbing their peace, weakening their obedience, and clouding their vision of God. First of all, and most simply, and you get this from 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, do not violate their conscience. Do not encourage them to violate their conscience. This is called the stumbling block principle, isn't it? So the most common one that we talk about often is, is the issue of alcohol and drinking. If someone believes as a matter of conscience that they shouldn't be drinking alcohol. Let's say that they come from an alcoholic family. Let's say that, that their family, like mine, has a reputation of not being able to hold their liquor. Wilsons just can't hold their liquor. I've never, I've never met one that could do that. I'm talking about double L Wilsons now. Well, maybe somebody in my family might say, I'm just not, you know, it's just a matter of conscience. I don't touch alcohol. Well, what the Bible teaches is it's fine for you to drink, but it's not fine for you to say, oh, come on. Come on, Wilson, you can drink that. You're encouraging them to violate their own conscience. Your conscience is not bound. You're free to drink, but their conscience is bound. And so what the apostle is teaching in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, and it really has to do with meat offered to idols in the first century. Maybe you feel free to eat the meat from the meat market that came through idol worship. And Paul seemed to suggest he was free to do that. He didn't have a matter of conscience with it. But a lot of Jewish people really did have matters of conscience. You don't eat the meat in a meat market when that meat was offered up as a, a, a sacrifice to an idol. And a lot of Jewish Christians just had matters of conscience over that. And Paul was saying to the Gentiles, look, okay, you've got this liberated, mature conscience. Great, fine. 
but you need to love your brother. Your, he called him weaker brother who has a matter of conscience. So don't tempt him to break his conscience. It's not a matter of you're having to do what he does. It's a matter of you're not convincing him to do what his conscience is telling him not to do. So help each other guard their consciences. So that means you have to know each other's consciences. We have to be friends. And we have to help protect each other to live a life that our conscience is leading us to live. It doesn't mean that I'm bound by your conscience. I'm free to drink. I'm not bound by your conscience. But I'm not going to go trying to get you to break your conscience. That's the first thing. Secondly, there needs to be in our church experience a pattern of encouragement. Holy encouragement. And you get this in Hebrews in a variety of ways. And you remember how this is Hebrews 10, 23 and 24? The writer of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then he says, verse 24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect the fellowship of the church. Be engaged in the disciplines, the communal public disciplines of the church, in worship and fellowship, so that you can encourage one another, spurring on one another. Spurring. You know what a spur is? Dig it into the horse and yoom, the horse takes off. So through encouragement, we're spurring one another on to love and good deeds. So these good deeds aren't going to come out of us unless we're encouraging each other to get them out. We really need com community to do this. And the communio sanctorum is for the purpose of spurring the church forward as a group, as a family, to love and good deeds. Some of you are very, very skilled at this. Some of us struggle with it. It feels like flattery if we go encouraging someone. Or it feels like we're trying to kiss up to somebody. Get over it. Humble yourself. First lesson we learned. Humble yourself. What difference does it make what someone thinks of you? Humble yourself. It's the only way you're going to encourage anybody. Humble yourself. And then you are then investing yourself in other people's lives to keep them from falling into temptation, to go in the opposite direction of temptation, to encourage them. How do you encourage? Well, you can say, for example, let's, let's assume you have a Sunday school teacher. If that Sunday school teacher taught you something, then let them know that they taught you and that they helped you. They get to see some of the fruit of their labor in your life. It wouldn't hurt for you to say to your small group leader, you know, hey, I know you spend more time preparing for our small group than the rest of us. We just really appreciate it. Every year, just think about this. So many of you are in adult Sunday school classes or small groups. Just think about once a year, send either a card or send your friend, buy, buy his lunch somewhere and just show encouragement. Get, show someone that their ministry is bearing fruit in your life. Or, you see them or hear about something they've done in Memphis or in, among their customers or in their business. You catch them red-handed doing good. 
Let them know you saw it and how much it meant to you. and That it really spurred you on to be a better man. Or when you see their kids and their kids are doing something right, you can really encourage each other. Because you know what? Parenting is a long road. You, know, you put about 20 years into the first 20 years of their lives, you're not sure what's coming out of this. And when you're in the middle of it and your kids are eight years old, you're not sure if you're doing any good or not. But I tell you, I was with someone not in, in our church not too long ago. They have two kids. And I just spent three minutes with those kids, and I knew those parents were doing a lot of good stuff. I could just see it in the kids. You know how you can tell? You just look in their eyes. You can tell if they're well-adjusted, if they feel like they're loved, if they're well-disciplined, if they respond in conversation to people. Boom, 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 boom. About four things that told me right away, these kids are onto something. Somebody's really helping these kids. So I just, I got the parents aside and said, look, your kids are just blown me away. I mean, I, I know you're really investing yourself in those kids. It's entirely obvious. And, you know, tears come down their cheeks. Because we don't know until someone encourages us. And all of us have a tremendous power to affect the church and to affect our friends. And sometimes it takes us decades to understand how much power we have. And I just want to save you a few years and tell you right now, you've got a powerful pistol on your hip. Pull the thing out and shoot it every once in a while. Use the weapons you've got. And you've got words of encouragement that you can give to people that will affect the way they look at their lives, that will affect what they're trying to do today when they go to work. It's amazing. We're responsible for this. The Communio Sanctorum is to be a community of encouragement. And it should be different from anything else you go to. So often we just drive down the street, we see all these church buildings, oh, there's church, there's church, there's church. And it's kind of like they're just rotary clubs everywhere. You know, what's the difference? Just this club, that club. No, these are holy communions of people who have a set purpose. And that purpose is to help us live holy lives. So we don't violate their conscience. And we don't tempt them to violate their conscience. Secondly, we give holy encouragement. Thirdly, we have to avoid loose speech. What do I mean by loose speech? Well, you can pick this up in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul talks about the kind of speech we are to use. And he, he basically says, let nothing edify, and not, let nothing unwholesome come out of your mouth. Let there be no filthiness, or, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, this is uh, Ephesians 5, 4, instead let there be thanksgiving. So he, he and in, in chapter 4, he speaks similarly. He says, uh, let no, this is verse 29, 429, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Look at that. Let no corrupting talk, Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may, it may give grace to those who hear. Listen, guys, I, I like a good joke. I really do. I, I actually like to tell them, and I've told a bunch of them I never should have. I just, I'm like Mae West, you know. I generally resist temptation unless I just can't avoid it. 
And if it's a good joke, it's just hard not to tell it. That's the reason I used to tell my dad who would give me all these bad jokes. Dad, stop it. Number one, I can't forget those good jokes. Number two, I can't tell them either. <laughs> so stop it. You drive me crazy. So I, I'm all for good humor. I'm just suggesting that you be selective. There's some good jokes that just are not worthy of retelling. There's some things that make you laugh that are really not funny at all when you think about it. So watch the loose talk. And it's not just when you enter a campus of a church building. You are the church wherever you go. And we're to be encouraging people to watch their talk. Talk gets really loose when there's money involved. Talk gets really loose when your pride is involved. Talk gets really loose uh, when you're competing on something. Talk gets really loose when you're cheering for your favorite, favorite football team. Watch your talk. Fourthly, we must be ready to correct, rebuke, and challenge our friends. Correct, rebuke, and challenge. If we're going to be a family, and if we're going to grow together, and if we're sinners then that growth and that development is not going to take place without constructive intervention on each other. There's just no way around it. None of us enjoys it on either side of the table. If you do enjoy either side of the table, either you're a masochist you know, or, uh, or a sadist, uh, it's not fun to be rebuked and it's not fun to do the rebuking. But in deep, loving, mutually respectful relationships, we have to learn how to do this. And there's a skill that needs to be developed. And if you feel like you're, you're weak in this area, I suggest you spend some time growing in this area. Learn from others who do it well. Each of us would know someone who comes to us and corrects us and does it in a good way. Would you just study how they do it? Why do they get by with it and others don't? Well, there's several principles. One is you know that they know they're no better than you are. If you have somebody come to you and they give the impression that they're better than you are, they're talking down to you, there ain't no way you're going to listen to that. You're going to brush them off. They're prideful. They're arrogant. They're just trying to put you down. So the first thing, obviously, is the person has to consider you more important than himself. He loves you and respects you. And you feel it. And they're coming to you because they're invested in you. They care about you. So that's number one. Number two, they come to you because they want you to be better, not because you've annoyed them. They come to you because of you not because of them. And that's the reason it's very hard to rebuke someone when you have a conflict of interest. When you have something that they've done that makes your life more difficult, you have to be far more careful. Because the rebukes that really help are the ones where you don't have a vested interest, or in other words, you're not trying to make your life better by their improving their behavior. You really have an interest in them. You're trying to help them be a better man. Thirdly, 
This will always happen if number two is true. You will recognize all of their positive traits. Or let me say it this way. If you're being rebuked and it's effective, it's because they recognize your positive traits. And you can hear it from them. Before they ever critique you, they first of all say, look, re, you know, I want to talk to you about something because, uh, you know, Bob, you're, you're an incredible person. You've, you have a tremendous effect in the workplace. You're really good at what you do. You've been extremely effective, and I, I, I may have something that will help you be even more effective. I'm not talking about flattery. Flattery, are positive, pl- flattery is positive things that are not true. That's manipulative. Nobody likes to be flattered if they're emotionally healthy. So I'm not talking about flattery. I'm talking about encouragement. Encouragement are positive things that are true. And when someone comes to you to rebuke you or correct you, you have a sense that they have a full awareness of and appreciation for the things that you know in your life are positive. And you know that they are aware of that and they deeply appreciate it. And fourthly, they, they don't manipulate you or force you. They leave it with you and trust you to take the corrective word and do something positive with it. They're not trying to manipulate you into submission. They're simply pleading with you and trusting that with you and the Holy Spirit, good things will come out of it. Now, those are four things that I notice in people when they rebuke me uh, that, they're very, that makes them very effective. And I just suggest that these are some things that you can work on to improve your ability to help other people avoid falling into temptation. You've got to be able to confront people. It's the same way with your children. And I don't mean to be condescending toward us as brothers, but some of the same principles apply as those you regularly use when you're dealing with your children. You love them. All these things are intuitive to you. You love them. You respect them. Sometimes you, you get angry at them because of what they're doing to you. So you're violating one of our principles, that you're trying to help them for their sake, not for your sake as father. But if you come to someone and you really deeply love them, you respect them, and you're leaving with them the decision to make because it really is theirs to make. Because remember, once you've provided the correction, you've done your job. And if you're praying for them, you're doing your job. Your job is not to make them change. Your job is to be a good brother. There's a difference between those two things. So sometimes when we go to correcting, you can, you can almost tell. If someone comes to you with a corrective word, you can tell they're not going to reconcile with you until you make the change. Until you agree with them, they're not going to accept you. But the person who's effective is the one who accepts you whether you agree with them or not. He's doing his part to love you and to seek to encourage you toward change. If you don't take it, he still loves you anyway. So he's not trying to control you. So all of these issues are extremely important in developing our skill in helping other people avoid temptation. None of this is going to work for you or anybody else, if they don't build relationships. And to build relationships, you have to log time. You can't just go to, go to Sunday worship and call that church. I mean, what would it be like if you said to your family, hey, what, what time of the day do you want to have family worship? Well, they say, oh, 7 o'clock at night. Well, I'll be there at 7. And I'll be heading out when we're through at 7.15. Might spend the night somewhere else. 
So you just show up for family worship every day. Well, we could say, boy, there's a great worshiper. Boy, he's really disciplined. Shows up every day at 7 o'clock. But he's not going to have much effect on really helping anybody else grow in their faith because he's not building relationships with his family. And it's the same way with us, guys. If, if you don't find ways to build relationships, uh, you're not, none of this is going to have any effect. And you, you may say, well, you know, my church just has got problems. You know, it's, it's difficult. Well, look, use your noggin. Uh, how is it in business? If you say, boy, the healthcare industry is really screwed up and you're a doctor, so what are you going to do? You're going to find a way to make your doctoring work, don't you? That's exactly what you do. In this messed up system, you find some way to make your doctoring work. I don't know how you do that, but I've noticed this. You're ingenious at it. This system can be very broken, very screwed up. You still find a way to doctor. Well, how about the church? Very broken, very screwed up. How about finding a way to do family? You can do it. It's, you know, it's not rocket science. It's a matter of your heart. And whether you want to be an agent of building constructive, edifying, sanctifying relationships. That's number one. Let's turn to verses 8 and 9. And here we see not just woe to the tempter. You know, watch out that you not tempt others, but woe to the flesh. Woe to the flesh. So we could say in the first one, you got to deal with others, but in the Roman numeral 2, it's you got to deal with yourself. And how true it is. If you do not take seriously your own sanctification, you are not going to be able genuinely to help somebody else with their sanctification. If you come to me with a correction about how I talk to other people, or I critique or run other people down, and I see you all day long running people down, what good is that going to do? So you see where, where Jesus is going with this sermon. He starts off by saying, watch out for these little ones of mine. You need to learn, every one of you, how to keep them from falling into temptation as far as you have anything to do with it. You've got to become experts at that. And then he says, watch out for yourself. There's some measures you have to take in your own life in order to avoid falling into temptation because just as we said a moment ago, you're not responsible for your brother if he falls into... Uh, I mean, you're not guilty for your brother's falling into temptation. You're responsible to help him. But you are guilty for falling into temptation yourself, so take measures. Now, first of all, notice this in verses 8a and 9a. Obedience, this is A on your outline, obedience demands self-discipline. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, it says butt it off, <laughs> cut it off. Cut it off and throw it away. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. You know, in church, uh, they were uh, a, a woman uh, kind of fell over the balcony. And there she was, you know, she had a dress on and she was over the balcony. And of course, everybody was looking up like this. The preacher said, don't you look up there, you're going to go blind. And one man said, how about just one eye? You know so, See, that's a joke I shouldn't tell. I don't know why you do it. <laughs> but it's the opposite. You know, cut the eye out. If the eye is the source of your temptation, Jesus is saying something very radical here. Now, obviously, cutting your eye out wouldn't solve your problem. Because the problem of lust is deep here in the heart. 
cutting off your hand with which you're counting your money wouldn't solve the problem of greed, would it? Because greed is in here. So we know Jesus is speaking, he's speaking uh, in, in uh, ways that are grand and uh, in some ways uh, beyond what's reasonable, but he's using it to make a point that you've got to be ruthless with your old self. You've got to be ruthless with your flesh. Show your flesh no mercy. And that's how we do it. We go at these things, full tilt, no reservations. Now, I'd like for us to think about uh, eight steps here. We'll go through these fairly quickly. Of defeating temptation, eight steps toward defeating temptation. And I want us to think, uh, what I want you to do is take in your mind especially three, let's take three biggies that trip us up. Sexual temptation. Greed. And pride. I heard Billy Graham say one day about 35 years ago, those are the three most common causes of failure in the Christian ministry. Pride, greed, and sexual immorality. Let's just take those three. And let's see how we need to be very radical with ourselves in order to get ourselves in line. Look, if you're going to train for a race, you've got to, you know, it's blood, sweat, and tears all the way. You've got to work yourself over. You've got to get in that gymnasium and get a really good workout. If you're going to live a holy life, gentlemen, you're going to have to go at it full tilt. Cut the hand off, cut the foot off, gouge the eye out. First of all, don't trust yourself. Don't trust yourself. Paul says, this is the Apostle Paul, gentlemen. He says, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. The very thing I do want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I do. He is so frustrated with his flesh. He's talking about his flesh. And he says, when I try to live the Christian life by the flesh, I'm totally frustrated. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So if you're trusting in your character, you're in bad shape. If you're a very fine Christian and you're trusting your personal character, your moral strength, you are a fool. Don't trust yourself. You're not to be trusted. As one elder told me one time, Sandy, everybody needs a boss, including senior ministers. Everybody needs help. And you leave yourself out there, and you're going to do it all, you're making a really bad mistake. Your heart is an idle factory. Secondly, contemplate the consequences. Just think about this. With, a, with sexual sin. You know, you go to Proverbs chapter 7, you'll see that Solomon tells his sons, avoid the temptress, avoid the, the adulteress. She's going to be luring you into her house. And you're going to go into her house and little do you know that her basement is full of dead bones. She's ensnared many men just like you and killed them. And so something that helps me, if I'm, if I'm walking around in the summertime and there are parts of female bodies flopping around like this, 
and my eyes are just, you know, gawking, I just get the smell of death in my nostrils. There are many dead bones in the basement of that woman's house. Just start smelling. Have you ever smelled human, a human corpse? I mean, been in a battlefield where you smelled death? Just start smelling that. That's where that'll take you. Get it in your nostrils. Uh, contemplate the consequences of where you're headed. Imagine if you're a husband. Imagine having to explain to your wife, and some of you have had to do this. You don't ever want to do it again. You've had to explain to your wife that you're unfaithful to her and watch her dissolve in a puddle and watch your children lose their affection for you. Just put yourself through that and see if that doesn't help just a little bit. Uh, get those consequences clearly in your head. It's the idiot whose who's, uh, glands determine his life. Uh, he is in constant trouble, constant terrible consequences. When it comes to greed, just imagine yourself dead. Here we are at your funeral. We've got about four people who are going to talk about your life. Somebody from your family, somebody from your business, somebody from your church, somebody from the community. Oh, well, you know, Sandy was really, he was a really wealthy man. Boy, he knew how to make money. And he sits down. Next person, well, you know, he was kind of stingy, but every once in a while I did a few. I mean, just imagine if everybody told the truth at your funeral. And just imagine what's going to happen to all that stuff you collected. Your vacation home, your nice cars, your house. Your children are going to be divvying it up. And sometimes getting mad at each other because the other one didn't get as much as they, or the other one got more than they did. And all of it's gone. It's none of it's yours. It's not yours. It's going to happen real soon, boys. I've, I've lived long enough to watch one generation. Just, it just happens real soon. All your stuff goes to somebody else. And you were so proud of it. And you were, it was your source of security. And you checked your account every day to see how much was in it. And it's gone. You have nothing to do with it anymore. And ultimately, it's going to burn up. Just use your imagination, will you? It's a sanctified imagination. Just get it in your head. The consequences of being greedy are to be stupid. The only thing you take to eternity is your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. And Jesus said, you know, these wicked people are so much smarter than you folks are. They know how to use their money to get what they want. And you're not using your money to get what you want. Why don't you be as shrewd as they are? Why don't you use your money in order to glorify God and build relationships? Because that's what you believe is eternal. Why don't you get shrewd about it and get, get busy with your money? Just think about the consequences. It's taking you in entirely the opposite direction of where you know things need to go. Think about your pride. So you're really proud about yourself and your accomplishments. Once again, just don't just go to your funeral. Go a, a, a few more miles down the road to your graveside. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Now, how proud are you of yourself right now? Big piece of dust, a big clot of dirt. Get these things in your head, how silly it is to fall prey to these major temptations. Contemplate the consequences. Thirdly, stick close to your friends. I mentioned there 1 Samuel 18 and 20 with David and Jonathan. They held each other accountable. Jonathan wouldn't let David chicken out. David wasn't inclined to, but Jonathan went out and encouraged him. And David, the mighty king, the beloved of the Lord, 
the Philistine killer, the Goliath killer. He had to have a Jonathan. And so do you. And you better be a Jonathan to a lot of other people. Uh, I, I can remember one, one man's funeral years ago. Uh, I preached from a text on Jonathan because this man was a Jonathan. He poured his life, his money, his prayers into building other people up for the sake of the kingdom. We need to stick close to our friends, and we need to be one of those friends who sticks closer than a brother. You've got to have your friends to live a holy life. Fourthly, set your mind on the Spirit. Set your mind on the Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8 that <clears throat> the mind... He said, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So Paul is saying, look, I'm frustrated in my flesh. The thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I do. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, he says. It's Christ who delivers us. How does he deliver us? Romans 8. We set our mind on the Spirit. That is, look, we are asking for alien power to help us. You know, I said a moment ago, don't trust yourself. Well, who do you trust? The Holy Spirit. Just as you trust in Christ's death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, you are trusting the power of the Spirit to conquer your sins. It's the same exercise of faith. You're trusting in another. Just as you have an alien righteousness from Christ, your righteousness that gets you into heaven is not your own intuitive, intrinsic righteousness. It's an extrinsic righteousness. It's a, an alien righteousness. It's a, the righteousness of Christ given to you fully through faith. Same way, you look for an alien power, not just an alien righteousness. An alien power. A power beyond yourself. A transcendent power. You can't defeat temptation without it, gentlemen. Don't trust yourself. You're going to have to be men of the Spirit. And so you set your mind on the Spirit. You're asking Him to come in and take over your life. You're contemplating what pleases Him. You've got your head in the heavenlies. And as Samuel Rutherford, the old Puritan, used to say, here's a holy man. He's got his head in the heavenlies. He has his hands on the plow and his feet firmly planted on the ground. There's a holy man. But get your head in the heavenlies. Look to the Spirit to help you. You've got to have your mind set on the Spirit. Fourthly, or whatever we are. Is it fifthly? Fifthly. No, fourthly. No? One, two, three, four, five. Fifthly. Looks like I've got nine of these. I think I cheated. Fill your heart with the love of God. Fill your heart with the love of God. I mentioned there the text from Genesis 39 when Joseph is being tempted by Potiphar's wife. How could I do this to the Lord? And how could I violate my trust with Potiphar? Joseph is aware of people who have been kind to him. Potiphar has been kind to him, giving Joseph management over the entire house. Joseph can have anything he wants to except for Potiphar's wife. So Joseph is saying, how could I violate my trust with Potiphar? And in the same way, how could I violate my trust with God? I was sold into slavery by my brothers. And look, the Lord has delivered me. And he's, get, he's put me in, in a good place. How could I violate the grace of God? 
So you fill your heart with the love of God. So you see, we cannot resist temptation by merely putting a block on our computer. We have to deal with the heart motivations. You've got to come on into the soul. This is where temptation is vitally dealt with. And your soul needs to be in love. Here, here's an ex the perfect example, of course, is if you're a married man and some other woman is flirting with you and your wife is walking right next to you, are you going to engage in flirtatious behavior with her? Is that not a total dismissal of your wife's res of respect for your wife? She's right there. I mean, forget it. When, I mean, it's one thing if she weren't there and you slipped, but if she's right there, and if God is right there with you and you love Him, you're married to Him, you're devoted to Him, you've taken vows to Him, what are you doing messing around with greed and sex and pride? These are enemies of God. This is the reason that you know, the Bible teaches us. John says, do you not know that you, to, to have friendship with the world is to have enmity with God? So it's out of the love and the loyalty of your heart. That's where your real protection comes from individually. It's in your heart. Fill your heart with the love of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of God constrains me. That's what constrains him is love. That's the key. And wherever we are, the next one, stand against the tempter. Notice that we flee from temptation, but we don't flee from the devil. There's a distinction. We flee from the temptation, but we stand against the devil. So you want to think in your small group discussions how you do that. Well, notice how Jesus does it. The devil tempts him to bow down and worship him, and he'll give him all the nations of the world. Jesus flees from that temptation. He's gone into the wilderness. He's done the opposite of, of seeking rule over this fallen world. He's going to rule over the new world. He knows the real promise is his father's promise, that all the nations will be his inheritance. The devil offers lies. Jesus flees from that temptation. But how does he flee from it? He stands against the devil and exercises the sword of the Spirit. That you should not bow down before anyone but me. He teaches, he, he rebukes the devil. He cites the word of God. The devil uses the word of God too and distorts it in trying to tempt Jesus. But Jesus still uses the word of God. What happens in Ephesians 6? We're told to put on the armor of God the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and then what? The sword of the Spirit. Notice all of these things are for the front of you. You don't have any armor on your back. It's going to do you no good to run from the devil. No, you face him with all the armor of Christ. And to put on the armor of God is to put on Christ and his word. And you take that sword, and that's the reason you learn the Bible. Because now you're ready to do warfare with the Bible against the devil. And so when he tempts you with greed, you, rem you just issue those verses that talk about eternal life and where your real wealth is and so on. So you stand against the tempter. Next, run from the temptation. We've already mentioned this. Paul says there's no temptation that is not common to man in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And then in verse 14, he says, flee from idolatry. 
So if you're tempted to idolatry, run away from those temples. If you're tempted to get drunk, run away from the bars. Run, flee, get away from there. If you're tempted to adultery, stay away from the beach on a summer day. Run away from it like crazy. It's like Augustine, you know, whose mother Monica was a wonderful believer in North Africa. Augustine was, you know, he wanted to experience everything the world had to offer. His mother wept and wept for him. So what does he do? He goes across North Africa, across the Mediterranean to Italy. He gets to Milan, and he's whoring around with prostitutes. He's getting drunk. He's doing all kinds of things. And then one day, he's sitting on a bench outside the cathedral, uh, and he hears the boys' choir singing, Tole Lege, Tole Lege, take up and read. And there is a Bible. He takes it up and reads it in, in Romans 13 about not being engaged in dissipation and so on. He gets converted. Later on that year, he's walking down the street and a woman comes up, Augustine, Augustine, is it you? And he just says, it is not I, and he keeps on walking. It's a new Augustine. So gentlemen, just run, run, get out of there uh, when you are tempted. Flee the temptation, stand against the tempter. Lastly, burn your bridges. And I believe this is what Jesus is really saying. Burn your bridges. As Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh. Luke 9.62 says, a man plowing and looking backwards is not worthy of the kingdom. If you're plowing and looking back like this, your plow is going like this, all over the place. If you want to plow a straight furrow, you keep your mind on that oak tree just ahead of you, and you just run that plow straight toward that oak tree. You start looking back, and your life is going everywhere. So burn your bridges. Make no provision for your flesh. It's like my, my little friend, Jamie, uh, this is years ago, uh, she's eight year, she was eight years old, and she had a boy in her third grade class write her a little note and said, Jamie, you're cute. I'd like to be your boyfriend. And she writes a note back, and she says, Joey, you are sometimes a bad boy, and I can't be your girlfriend, but check with me on Friday. <laughs> That's called provision for the flesh. I mean, I, you know, let's, let's come back to it later. Let's, let's reconsider this, you know. Make no provision. Ruthless. Cut the eye out. Tear off the foot and the hand. Lastly, B, verses 8B and 9B. It is better for you to enter life. Uh, here's the point. Self-discipline brings great joy. Self-discipline is not to make yourself miserable. Self-discipline is to set you free. Self-discipline is to draw you near to Christ. Self-discipline ultimately gets you home safely. Mortification brings vivification. Death to the things that are alluring you Bring life to your spirit, your soul, your whole life, and one day grandly in the presence of God. Gentlemen, this is the way to life. And remember what Jesus is saying primarily is this is what the church is all about. For you to give life to other people and for you to be a man who knows how to latch onto life yourself. And it requires this great discipline against the tempter himself. Let us pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to go into the wilderness to face the temptations of the evil one so that he, unlike Israel in the wilderness, would successfully defeat the evil one. We pray that we too in our wilderness may walk with Jesus and experience the conquest of righteousness over wickedness by simply trusting in the power of your spirit working through us. For Lord, we are... We are mightily frustrated 
when we depend upon ourselves. We do the things we don't want to do. We don't do the things we should do. But Lord, by your power, we can experience the victory of real life in Jesus. So help us, Lord. We cast ourselves upon your mercy and ask now that you would use us to encourage other men and women to live a life that is truly life itself. Amen.